Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. Gina Birkmeyer is a licensed professional counselor in St. Louis, author and a distinguished speaker, and she has a wonderful, perhaps unique take on mental health with her COVID lockdowns and a host of long-standing social problems. Her analysis is rare on some levels, certainly original and breathtakingly honest. Pick and choose what you will, but let's say this. Gina Birkmeyer may sum up much of what imperils the Western world today. And she is my guest coming up. I think that there is so much deteriorating in our society in terms of how we hold value for one another and how we hold compassion for one another. And I think that influences all of those things that you just mentioned. There is a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it's by Gabor Mate. And he is fascinating when you talk about the drugs and addiction and alcoholism. And he has this philosophy that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I would say the opposite of a lot of our mental health issues is connection, healthy, good, strong connection with people. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political, and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. We'll be going to my interview with Gina Birkmeyer in a wee moment. When I called her unique, I truly meant it, because faith and therapy and her belief in God have played important roles in Gina Birkemeyer's own healing. She has nearly two decades of experience in counselling and Christian ministry, and she uses her personal experiences and professional knowledge in her work. Her new book is called Generations Deep, Unmasking Inherited Dysfunction and Trauma, to rewrite our stories through faith and therapy. The book achieved Amazon bestseller status within a day of release and reached number one in new releases in the Christian personal transformation category. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Sure, look, it's grand to have you back. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Gina Birkmeyer, and she is a licensed professional counsellor in St. Louis, an author and distinguished speaker. Her new book is called Generations Deep, 
Gina explains how her work all began. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. I started in ministry and then I began working with women predominantly who were struggling with crisis, uh, domestic violence, homelessness, women coming out of prison, uh, multiple single mom issues where there was no support no help for them and their children. And I was just sort of drawn to that work, which speaks a lot to my story and, and my own personal history. Uh, but from there, I went into actual counseling. So I became a clinically trained professional licensed counselor. And I practiced from a redemptive worldview with that idea that we are created to grow and to heal and to change and that trauma is not meant to be part of our story. And so because it isn't meant to be part of our story, it is something that we can heal from and we can grow from. How common is it to have that combination, Christian ministry and counseling? That's a really good question. So I would say because of the circles I travel in, obviously it's pretty common. My colleagues, a lot of my colleagues have that same combination. I think, um, so, so in my practice, we are all counselors who come from that evidence-based, clinically trained perspective, but with the redemptive worldview. And what's interesting is we actually have a lot of clients who don't subscribe to the same belief system that we do, which is very interesting to me because I feel like that speaks to the level of safety that we've been able to create in just receiving the whole person. I think sometimes we can leave the spiritual out and we forget that it's really an important aspect of our being, particularly when we are talking about how we heal. So for instance, I subscribe to the belief that we are created not to be alone, but we are wired and science seems to show this as well. We are wired to do our our best relation, relating, growing, all of those things in the context of relationship. And while we are wounded most often in the context of relationship, it is also in relationship that we heal. So really seeing that part of a person and embracing that as part of the healing journey, I think is important. And I think it promotes a level of safety to people when they know that that, that door is open for whatever type of spirituality they're going to bring in the door. They don't have to believe what I believe, um, but I see them as an image bearer regardless. Um, created in that in that beautiful space of, of wholeness. Somebody who comes to your practice, they don't have to be a religious person. No, absolutely not. I, I've had people who don't believe in God at all. Um, one of the areas that I work with often are people who have experienced a trauma where God has somehow been culpable in that trauma because their wounding happened under sort of like the name of God, whether it was in a Christian home or within the context of a church relationship or something like that, where maybe they have sort of like a, um, like an anger towards God or, you know, that stiff arm kind of pushing, pushing him away or not sure how they want that to be part of their journey. You are non-denominational. You're not a member of any particular church. You right. read the Bible. Yes, not denominationally. I'm not, I'm not a member of any denominational church, no. But yes, I do read the Bible. I'm a follower of Jesus. And, and I believe that the best theology that we can bring to the table is a trauma-informed theology, a trauma-sensitive theology. And I think if we're reading our Bible well, we will see that there's a whole lot of that in the Bible in the matriarchs and patriarchs of our faith as well. Well, you mentioned the church and people getting angry with God. Uh, we've seen a lot of stories and read stories in the last decade or more about church scandals. I mean, particularly 
in the Catholic Church, perhaps in other churches, uh, but they may not just get the same coverage. So you see clients who have had trauma within institutional churches? I have, but I think the spiritual wounding looks different depending on the person. So, and I will say that's even a part of my own story because I was, I was raised in a, for all intents and purposes, a Roman Catholic family. My family is very Italian, raised in very steeped, very much in the culture of Catholicism and was sort of raised to believe in this punitive, punishing, smiting kind of God. Um, and I think oftentimes God can be seen as that and even promoted as that and used as a weapon against, um, against us as we're growing against us in our relationships. Uh, I have seen it where people have been wounded in the context of relationship in church because of mental illness that was not handled well within the church or domestic violence, which was not handled well or affairs that were not handled well. And so that re-injuring of the person who's already been injured in the context of, of that relationship has been heartbreaking to see. Um, but very beautiful to walk through that with people when they find that healthy spirituality and then they can find a healthy, emotionally healthy church to go and be a part of a body that can love and embrace them right where they are. And that's just such a beautiful thing to be a part of. So you referenced your Italian background and your Catholic upbringing. That's uh, interesting. So is there a certain kind of Christian neurosis that can manifest if a follower of a particular faith, Christian faith or a Catholic faith, is doing it in the wrong way? Because we are led to believe that it's a good thing to be a Christian or have faith and we know of many good people in Christian and Catholic communities and in other communities. And there's endless amount of positive stories. Unfortunately, we read all these negative ones because right. it's news. I think you're 100% right. I think it is important to recognize that those are the things we hear about because they are sensational, not that it isn't pervasive. And I think what we see Often in my counseling room, what I see is a lot of the more implicit um, and the covert uh, wounding of people in the context of the church more than the overt. Uh, and, and it can look a lot like some of the things that we've mentioned. It can also look like uh, failing to really under have that trauma-informed, as I mentioned before, trauma-informed theology, trauma-sensitive theology, where we can come alongside people and rather than slapping a sin label on behaviors that they are exhibiting, we're taking a look at what has led that person to where they are today. And how do we stay out of judgment for that person? How do we stay out of judgment for what they're experiencing and how it's coming out in their behaviors? And how do we walk alongside them to health? Recognizing that a lot of these dysfunctional behaviors that we see, um, a lot of the traumas that people come to the table with are not just within their own uh, experience there it's it's literally generations deep in their family it's something that has kind of been pervasive throughout the generations of their family and we will speak to that later in your new book which talks about this intergenerational therapy if you will that you practice it's fascinating when you talk about ministry and christian faith and our spiritual leaders Many people have been let down by their faith leaders. Uh, we saw that in the church scandals. And it's kind of 
ironic, maybe odd, that they have then to turn to professionals outside the institutional church to get healing. I agree with that. You see this movement to build the bridge between the the faith communities and and the mental health communities. I'm actually a part of a movement here where we uh, actually train church leaders and volunteer leaders in the churches to understand better what mental health and spiritual and emotional intelligence really looks like in spiritual health in light of emotional health. I think you, we are beginning to see that, but it is heartbreaking to know that there are these places that should be safe havens and they aren't safe havens. Um, they aren't places of rest. You know, Jesus said the church was supposed to look like a hospital. And I think oftentimes the church just looks like um, a a lot of people who are trying to be as bright and shiny as they can because they're terrified to bring their real stories to the table. Now, you reference your own, again, Catholic background, and you seem to describe a very harsh application of faith. Tell us about that. So... Uh, Okay, so we had this picture. I think this is like a great story that just sort of personifies it in my history. So we had this picture in my grandmother's living room and it was a picture of Jesus. And it looked like it was it was sort of like supposed to be the shroud. Right. And so it was basically Jesus with his eyes closed, looking very battered and torn. And but if you looked at it long enough, his eyes would open. Right. Creepiest. Ever this thing. was an actual, I, this was, this was a reality. This was how it was. Oh, I'm not kidding you. It was this oh, wow. optical illusion that if you stared at this photo long enough, the artist had created this, this visual that the eyes would look, would appear to open once you stared at mm-hmm. it long mm-hmm. enough. And once they opened, you could not unsee that. And that was sort of, you know, as a kid, I mean, you know, you're, t- you're told that's Jesus on the wall and he's watching you not in a sweet, compassionate He's watching over you and he loves you, but more in a don't mess up because he's he's watching you and and that that can fare very badly for you. And so just kind of raised to believe in a God that would not tolerate mistakes, would not tolerate imperfection, who couldn't be bothered with little problems, who who because I didn't know the Bible then. So I didn't realize that actually what what we see in scripture is the polar opposite. He says, come to me with everything. I want it all, mm-hmm. bring it all. And so, but that was not what I was raised in. And as a result, um, that harshness kind of really turned me off. And it wasn't that I stopped believing in God, but he kind of scared me. Uh, and I was pretty sure he didn't believe in me, at least in my ability to, to have value and worth. And so that coupled with a lot of the dysfunction that was going on in my home and a lot of the developmental traumas that I experienced Um, I think that was a a critical missing piece for me that could have been an important place um, of healing and solace and recognizing that that was also something that that didn't come with my grandmother, who was actually my great aunt. I know it's complicated, but I was adopted and the whole thing stayed in the family. Um, And so when you have have to have a chart to show people your family, you know, it's complicated, right? (laughs) Um, I think uh, the uh, Italian and Irish charts can be quite complicated. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so, and so I think, you know, that was just kind of one of those places where I lost out and it was heartbreaking. And so whenever I get an opportunity to work with somebody who has had even a similar experience and help them kind of right the ship in what they believe God believes about them, uh, that is such a gift to me to be able to do that. You overcame all of that 
trauma in childhood and you evolved into a great professional. You went to theology school? I did, yes, yes. Um, I went to Covenant Theological Seminary and studied there. And also that was where I received my master's in counseling. So it was a, um, a, it was kind of the idea of getting your psychology and your counseling training, but from that redemptive worldview, which looking back, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. You used the word redemptive. So that's a term that's used in Catholic circles, redemptive suffering. Is that what you are talking about? So when I say redemptive worldview, what I'm where I'm coming from is a place of believing that it everything can be redeemed. Everything can be redeemed. There nothing is outside of the the realm or the grasp of redemption. So when I say redemptive worldview, creation, humanity, I see all of that as as being redeemable, all of it because it all still bears the image of a God who, who loves it, who created everything out of love. And so I think that redemptive mark is still on everything. It's kind of hard to see sometimes because of the way we treat each other and the way we treat our planet. And yet it is still there. If we're paying attention, we can see it on a daily basis. We see it. And so helping people get back to that space of being more whole um, being closer to that to that free place that we've been created to live out of is a big goal and a big important part of how I view my work and how I view people. You have a new book out, and I'm going to just take a quick peek at it here, Generations Deep. That's about this whole idea of problems, trauma, neurosis, habits that are destructive, are passed along from one generation to the next. Can you take us through that? So the full title is Generations Deep, Unmasking Inherited Dysfunction and Trauma to Rewrite Our Stories Through Faith and Therapy. And that really does sum up the book. So so I take you through this journey, starting back with my great-grandparents coming over from my great-grandfather coming over from Italy uh, and, and kind of the things that permeated their lives and led to pain and dysfunction and some developmental traumas that different generations experienced, how that then formed and informed them and how then that was passed on to the next generation and the next generation and kind of how that played out. Um, Along the way, as you're walking through my story, I ask the readers to also consider there's questions in the book that ask them to consider their own story while they're considering my story. Um, There is a questionnaire in the book to help them get a better grasp of what trauma can really be. The uh, questionnaire was actually created with the help of over 60 other trauma-informed therapists and really helps people expand their definition of trauma and gives them some permission to take a look at things that have happened in their life and in their family in ways that maybe they have not taken a look at it before. And part of the science outside of the psychology science of this is something called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And when we look at that from a behavioral perspective, what we're talking about is epigenetics, not genetics, right? So so we think DNA genetics, but think epigenetics as in above or over our genetics. So our DNA is wrapped in essentially epigenetics. And while DNA is what, what so there's a saying what, that DNA loads the gun, but epigenetics pulls the trigger. The way I like to think about it is that DNA writes the script. So if you look at the script or the manuscript of a book, 
DNA writes that original script, but epigenetics comes in and edits it and says, we're not going to use this part. This can sit here, but nobody's going to read it. This part's going to be a little bit bigger and kind of effectively will can turn on or off our genes is what epigenetics does. And we see effectively in science, we're seeing that trauma repeats. It can be uh, manifested in a generation um, and most of the research has been done um, with mice, but it's, it's consistent with what we see in the counseling room as well um, and in psychology. But these trauma responses that are seen in the offspring of a mouse that has experienced firsthand trauma in relation to a certain stimuli, like the smell of a blossom or the taste of a food, these these consequential generations are born. And when introduced to that same thing that is neutral, that has nothing negative, they still have a negative response to it. And even their ability to regulate cortisol and all of those things are kind of passed down. And what's fascinating to me when we talk about the science and the scripture is that in the lab, this seems to repeat and seems to be consistent with what we see in therapy to the third and fourth generation without intervention. There is a scripture in in the Bible, in Exodus, that says the sins of the father are visited to the future generations, to the third and fourth generation. And so you see that parallel, which is fascinating to me. And for a long time, that scripture really bothered me. Um, I mean, I'm talking butt scrunch moment bothered me, right? Couldn't stand that scripture. I thought it was just another sign of this punitive God that had it out for us. But as I've done my own work in my own story, and as I've learned this research and, and done my own study and, and became a therapist and worked with all these people, that scripture is really like an imploring from a compassionate God saying, you have to own your stuff. You have to work through this. If you don't work through your stuff and own your stuff, it's going to affect your children and your children's children and their children after them. And so I think if we're paying attention if we can look at that rightly, we can see the value in making those shifts so that we can offer something different as a legacy to our kids. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. My guest is Gina Birkmeyer, and she is a licensed professional counselor in St. Louis, an author and distinguished speaker. Her new book is called Generations Deep, I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. So what kind of traumas and problems are passed through the generation? What are some examples? Okay, so there's implicit and then there's explicit, right? So you might see um, a history of alcoholism that causes developmental traumas, right? Like when you're exposed to that as a kid, um, you will often hear the term adult child of an alcoholic. There's a reason that you hear that term because in the therapy room, we're dealing with an adult who is working through the fallout of having been a child of an alcoholic. And that's playing out in their relationships now. It can be an unhealthy relationship with food. If we, if we misunderstand um, a healthy perspective of food, it can be a misrepresentation of religion, a relationship with God. 
It can be that uh, someone has um, sexual abuse or an assault and it forms or informs the way they see themselves as a woman or as a person or how they see the opposite sex. And then that is sort of how they teach the next generation to see themselves or the opposite sex. So we can take the things that happen to us that form and inform our view of ourselves, of other people, of God, of our world. And then that becomes what forms and informs our children and so on and so on and so on. Is there any risks involved of misdiagnosis? I'm thinking also along demographic, ethnic lines even, and we don't want to stereotype, but you take the Irish or Irish American population, for example, there's a high incidence of alcoholism, something cultural as much as maybe genetic. That's one thing, but if somebody diagnoses, makes a misdiagnose, is that a problem? So where would you see, like, tell me what you mean by misdiagnosis, if we misdiagnose. For example, if you concluded or a therapist concluded that uh, somebody's grandmother or great-grandfather, whatever, was just a total crackpot, a total absolute neurotic or something, and maybe it was something else. Maybe they were just lonely, for example. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Now, that's beautiful. And I, I appreciate you saying that because one of the goals in the book is not to point a sharp finger of blame at the generations before us. It's really to develop compassion for them and for ourselves and to release some of the shame. Shame can be a legacy all of itself. I mean, you can literally have shame in your foundation. And when you have shame in your foundation, it determines your ceiling. And when you come from a long line of people who have deep-seated shame about what has happened to them or decisions that they make, that permeates through the generations. And so the idea isn't even so much to say, well, yeah, you're going through this because grandma or mom went through that. It's more like, okay, well, let's try to understand that the reason this is so pervasive and difficult to break these cycles is because it didn't start with you. So as you begin to build grace, understanding, compassion, not to excuse, not to minimize, not to justify or validate any, any poor behaviors at all, or someone injuring us because they've abused their own free will. We're not doing any of that. We're just, we're grasping understanding. We're, we're saying, yes, this makes sense. And it was very wounding. Yes, I can understand because this horrific thing that grandma went through, and then this is what happened to mom. And that was passed on to me. And yes, that's heartbreaking. And but it expands my capacity and grace for them. And conversely, also, the beautiful part about it is that translates to grace and compassion for ourselves. We're not excusing anything. It's not the what is wrong with you. It's the what happened to you. And that's kind of that trauma-informed place where we can be sensitive of the things that contributed to the behaviors we see. And when that happens, judgment leaves the room. When that happens, condemnation leaves the room. And when those things leave the room, they take shame with them. And when we get shame out of the room, we can fully see somebody. And when somebody is fully seen and fully known, they can feel fully loved. And that's the space where change and growth happens. So you have a lot of wounded patients coming into your practice. Is the idea to get them to open up, come out of their shell, to describe their history and background and get them to see themselves in the mirror and then let go? 
I would say yes and no. It's it's whatever they need. So it's far more organic than that. Um, I think, you know, it, it's kind of, you have, you know, you hear the clinical side of treatment plans and evidence-based therapies and interventions and all of those things are important. Um, I would not minimize any of them. In fact, I talk about several therapies that helped me in my own journey in the book. And these are therapies that I also use with my clients. These are strong evidence-based practices. However, I would say that as we're walking through those things and someone is sharing their narrative, the idea is to create a space where they're bringing as much of their story as they feel safe to bring, because you you don't ever want someone to bring everything all at one time and risk re-injuring them. And then you also don't want to rehearse traumatic experiences just for the sake of rehearsing them, because the more you tell yourself a story, the more it will become true. So if you're rehearsing all of these traumas that have happened in your life just for the sake of saying them over and over again, you're reinforcing those memories. You're reinforcing that part of your narrative. And we don't want to do that. We want to reinforce the, the, the growth narrative. We want to reinforce how we can heal and release some of the emotional sting and emotional pain of these experiences. Now, do you believe the concepts in Generations Deep, your book, have application universally? I do. I do. Because, so, well, everyone has epigenetics, for starters. There, there isn't, like, there's no person on the planet that doesn't have an epigenetic profile. And one of the most significant influencers of our epigenetics from a behavioral perspective are our relationships. And I think that our relationships inform everything. I think the, the, the caregivers that bring us up inform everything. It doesn't matter what your culture is or, or your socioeconomic status, it, all of those things. Um, wherever you are in any of those places, the concepts in Generations Deep will, will speak to you. Because again, we're at that space where we're looking at the things that have informed and formed us. So the beliefs we may have about an entirely different group of people, an entirely different class of people, an entirely different, you know, people whose skin does not look like ours, people who don't worship the way we worship, people who don't live in houses, the, the kind of houses that we live in, right? All of those things. So, so yeah. So, and sometimes there have been aha moments in my own life and with clients where they've said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I believed that way about that person you know what, that goes back to my grandfather and just kind of that beautiful mm. aha moment of, oh my gosh, okay, am I passing this on to my kids or my grandkids? I'm going to go home and have some conversations. And I just, that's just such a beautiful thing. Does it lead where appropriate to reconciliations? A patient may come in and having a lot of conflict with their parents or siblings related to everything you've just talked about and now they see it more clearly and they have that aha moment and they go back into the family fold different person yes yes and i so so i can talk about how i see that with my clients absolutely and how i see them then transforming what they're giving to their children but i also want to say that so the book came out it hasn't been even a month yet it's been about 3 weeks since the book hit and the private messages that I get bring me to tears, people who I will never have the privilege of sitting eyeball to eyeball with, 
I will never have the privilege of hearing their own, their whole story, but yet they're telling me, uh, Hey, I read the book and I worked through the questions and the questionnaires. And then I bought it for my mom and my mom and I sat down and had conversations we've never had before. And I bought it for my grown daughters and we're sitting down and have conversations. And my mom just told me about this horrible thing that happened to grandma when she was a little girl. And I never knew that, but it explains so much about my grandma and my mom. And I have so much more compassion for them. And these messages, John, I am telling you on a daily basis, if that is not redemption multiplied, I don't know what is. It is just, it just moves me every day. It's, it's such a gift. Are we seeing more mental health problems in today's world? I guess with COVID-19, the answer is yes. And that's kind of an old story. But, you know, leaving aside COVID, is there an escalation in mental health? I would say yes. I think there is. On the other side of that coin, though, I will say I think that there is also because it's hard to know, John, is it really that there's more of it or that people are feeling more permission to talk about it? Yeah, I I was going to just mention that also, because in previous generations, you come from Italian American household and Irish American households or whatever household, a lot of those topics were taboo, right? don't Don't mention mental health and just go to your church and pray. 100%. And that's, and I think that that is, I will say that at least on a weekly basis, that is, that is, uh, if I can use the word demon, that that's a demon that I, I, I come to blows with on almost a weekly basis with someone, um, mm-hmm. who is struggling with that whole concept of just pray harder. Um, if you just believed more and prayed harder, then things would be better. And, and, can I just add that I think that's also why our spiritual leaders have such a hard time coming to the table with their own struggles of mental issues. When they're, when our, when our spiritual leaders have mental health issues, they feel like they can't go anywhere because Mm. it's somehow a blight on their, uh, on the strength of their faith or the power of their prayer, or it's because they have some unaddressed sin in their life. And that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ludicrous. And yet there is still some undercurrent of that in the church today, which is, is heartbreaking. Uh, and another reason why as, as people who practice from both that Christian worldview and, and the psychological um, mental health worldview, putting those two things together, I think is so important because we really do want to help reclaim that particularly for people of faith and, and people outside of faith, of course. But, um, but yes, I do think that it's, that we see it more, whether it's because people are talking about it more or whether it's because we have so many things that are adversely affecting us now, maybe more so than ever before. Um, we have far more things distracting us from real connection with one another and from connection with ourselves and from connection with God. We are such a distracted society and our brains are not made to be distracted. They're not meant distracted. Um, and so I think all of these things contribute, particularly when we're talking about anxiety and depression. I think that's absolutely right. I had that conversation with a guest recently talking about so many social media, checking for the ball game scores, you know, 24-7 TV, um, Twitter, uh, Instagram, the whole lot. I'm losing track of some of the platforms even. But you're a person of faith and you believe in God and you believe in the love of God. Do you believe in miracles? Well, I would say that I am one. So, yes. Um, so 
when I look back on my story, I can think of at least three times when I probably should have been dead um, for all intents and purposes. Um, And the fact that I'm sitting here today, I believe is in part uh, due to a miracle um, that God had, that that was just part of the plan that I was going to get to do what I do and and help other people. Um, And so, yeah, I would say that I do believe in miracles. Um, I don't think in a Pollyanna sort of way, because I have a Mm. lot of questions. I have a lot Mm. of questions. Like when I see the person who deserves the miracle, right? Like in, in, from my human finite perspective, I see the person that deserves the miracle and they don't (laughs) get it. And I cry foul. I cry foul Mm. on that. I don't understand it. And I'm going to have a lot of questions for him someday, but yeah. You wonder if God then is sending people to people like you. Maybe that's sort of the background miracle. In other words, you <laughs> talked about maybe our faith leaders may have their own struggles and they've nowhere to turn to. God isn't exactly saying, don't go to the therapist. No, I. in fact, that really hurts my heart when I hear people say that they have to choose between those two things. Because quite frankly, if you think about some of the therapies, the deeper therapies that we see such great success, particularly in line with trauma. So when we're talking about EMDR, um, or we're talking about IFS or somatic experiencing or any of those things that involve the whole person, more of the whole person, and what we would even call a a, uh, bottom up approach, In other words, you can't really get at it from just talking about it because cognitively, you know, we tend to go offline when trauma happens. So cognition is kind of not there for us. So, so we're dealing with things that are far more visceral, far more contained in the body. And I think when we, when we employ, employ these, um, these therapies that take that approach, we're working beautifully in line with how our body has been created as a system and how our minds have been created to work with our body and our body with our mind and getting all of that back online, working the way that it should. And from my perspective and in in line with my beliefs, that is a God honoring thing to do because we're working in line with how we have been created to heal and grow. Are medications involved in your practice? Do you prescribe? I'm not a prescriber per se, uh, but when medication is needed, I champion someone to get medication because a lot of times that we're talking about a chemical issue there. And so sometimes we have to get the chemical balance in line so that we can do the therapeutic work without the chemical, the chemical imbalance getting in the way. So there are other options that people can explore in addition to medication. A lot of people do not want to use medication. They would rather try some natural things. So I work with people for some of that, what I would call low hanging fruit in terms of some lifestyle changes. And then I ask them to take that to their doctor and take a look at that. If if, uh, medication is indicated and they work with a psychiatrist, I love partnering with psychiatrists so that we're on the same page with therapy and things like that. I think having that team approach is really helpful. There's a big debate about medications and Mm -hmm. very polarized. On the one side, there are those who say, don't touch medications. And the others Mm -hmm. say, yes, medications are the way to go. And then there are others who say there's abuses of medications and there are some medications shouldn't even be in the market. I'm going to say yes to all of that. Um, I think you'd probably find if that was a line that you just described, I'm probably standing in the middle of that line. Mm. Uh, And and I will say that a really good psychiatrist, um, I will go so far as to say this, that they're not just looking at what's being prescribed. 
they're looking at a person's support system. They're looking at a person's lifestyle. What are their habits of health and wellness? Are they in therapy? If they're not in therapy, then they need to be in therapy. Like that needs to be part of the prescription. And all of the research shows us that medication alone has the lowest efficacy. It's, it's medication with therapy, then medication with therapy and support systems, and then medication and therapy and lifestyle changes. The more you get all those facets working together to the same goal, the more likely you are to find success with a client. But you could also find fulfillment and a cure without medication. I have a lot of clients that come to me that don't take medication at all, or they might take supplementation, or maybe they change their diet or their sleep habits. Um, There are things that we can do to increase naturally the chemicals in the brain that are our feel good chemicals or our stabilizing chemicals. Um, Gratitude practice is huge. And that is, that is pretty much universal. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gratitude practice. Yes, sir. Gratitude practice is huge uh, for mental health and wellness, um, regardless of what you believe from a spiritual perspective. Um, that That is huge. Uh, being careful with your diet, moving your body, having exercise, sleeping well, um, having careful with your relationships, having healthy relationships. And then again, some of the therapeutic interventions I mentioned, like EMDR, um, IFS, DBT, these are all clinical Um, clinical perspectives, evidence-based therapies that work to help people recover from trauma. The emotional and mental health issues out there related to alcoholism, divorce, family breakdown, street violence, drug violence, it's an endless list. It's a bigger list today than it ever was. It is a bigger list than it ever was. And you know, um, we could sit here all day and take guesses as to why that is I think that there is so much deteriorating in our society in terms of how we hold value for one another and how we hold compassion for one another. And I think that influences all of those things that you just mentioned. So uh, there is a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and it's by Gaber Mate. And um, and he is fascinating when it comes when you talk about the drug, the drugs and addiction and alcoholism. And he has this philosophy that um, the opposite of addiction is connection. And I would say the opposite of a lot of our mental health issues is connection, healthy, good, strong connection with people. Relationships. What's a typical client of yours, the profile? Wow. Uh, I don't think I have a typical, Uh, I I see just about everyone. Um, I will say my case looks pretty heavy with women. It's, it's mostly women right now. Um, and I will say that most of them are dealing with a space in life where life is just no longer working. The coping mechanisms that they have leaned into are, have become more maladaptive. These, these things that they lean into to deal with life are actually preventing them from living the life that they want to live. And they're not sure how they got there, but they know they don't want to be there anymore. And Generations Deep is the name of your book. You can give us the full title again. Yes. Generations Deep, Unmasking Inherited Dysfunction and Trauma to Rewrite Our Stories Through Faith and Therapy. If people want to reach you, do you have a website? How can they get in touch? So they can uh, they can find information about the book and they can also contact me at generationsdeep.com. 
and they can find me on social media at my out loud voice on Instagram and Facebook, and they can subscribe uh, at any of those places. They can subscribe to the newsletter and find out more information about generations deep. Um, They can, they can get some, some bonus content as well. We are starting a YouTube channel as well, and they will get to see uh, some interviews with other therapists who have worked through this book, who are using it with their clients, and then some individuals as well who are who have found the book very valuable, some educators, some entrepreneurs, um, a lot of people from a lot of walks of life. So those interviews are very interesting. Gina, it's been a pleasure having you on my show. Good luck. Thank you so much. It's been great to visit with you. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.